It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it's only something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen got no seats. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, the fire, Mr. Gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury's beating down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. I would say and bloom, but I've only had two sips of coffee so far this morning. <laughs> <laughs> so it hasn't bloomed yet for no, you. No, you're the one who wakes up with a shiny, happy attitude. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, oh, that's me. Funny and smiley and, and yes. good-natured. Funny peculiar or funny ha-ha? <laughs> funny ha-ha. Oh. I just need a little coffee before I'm <laughs> as happy as you are. <laughs> So, Let's say hello to our friends and Hi, neighbors. everybody. <laughs> oh, that's right. They're listening. That's right. Welcome to <laughs> good the... Good morning. Welcome. Good afternoon. <laughs> good good evening. evening. Whatever it is. <laughs> Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a tranquil terminus in a terrifying world. That's actually not what I'm supposed to be saying. What the <laughs> hell's going on here? Huh. <laughs> See what I mean? You're hilarious in the morning. <laughs> uh, um, well, you know, that made the... Blooper reel for sure. <laughs> we have to, so we have to start one, of course. But all right, we certainly. It's not because we haven't had plenty of. Okay, wait. Here we're going to do what... a rewind sign, a sound. <laughs> hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour. It is a fortress of fortitude in an unfortunate world. I'm Joe Alden. I shouldn't even mention my name because I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I'm Joe Alden, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 800 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. That's because you work really hard yeah. writing a lot. That's right, and all sorts of other stuff. I'm a grand old man with a brand new plan. That's to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. I actually shouldn't give you 100% credit because I do write things, You too. do, and you're going to be giving us some very important information today. Yeah, that's true. I've done some good research. So anyway, I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife, and I am also known as Nurse Amy. And also known as the hostess with the mostest, so fiery that the wildfires are staying on the West Coast and don't dare to step foot in our native Florida. That's right. Together, you and I are the watchers on the wall, and we watch it all for you to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? That is a big issue with an overbearing octopus. 
Our attorney says don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. You know, Octopi are actually pretty smart. They I, are. I would not want to get tangled up with them. Get it? Tangled, I would rather tangled sm- up with them. I would rather have eight <laughs> pies than an octopi. <laughs> oh boy, folks. Sorry for the funny bones today. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. Don't Pre- send... Pretty please. Pretty please. Don't... Send us pictures on what a great job you did on your neighbor's brain transplant. Oh, my dad just sent a picture of his... man does need one. Yes, that's true. Mm -hmm. My dad just sent a picture, as a matter of fact, of his knee replacement. Oh, well, he did need that. Yes, we'll be showing that in our suture class because it's all staples. So show people what a medical professional did for staples. And you know what? They're not perfect. They are not perfect. They are not perfect. That's true, and that's from a board-certified orthopedic surgeon. Oh, yes, at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Right, which is a a big teaching institution as well. Hey, K-Pasa USA, we learn as much from you as you do from us, so connect with us. It's easy. It's a piece of cake. It's a piece of pie. It's a piece of pizza. (laughs) I I don't know. Uh, it's that easy, in other words. Here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. Let's see. You can email us which is probably the best thing to do, to our account at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Yes, we still have AOL, the dinosaurs. I'm changing that. Uh, We've got to enter the I new century. I don't like Gmail, though. It's Well, I think they've sent no, simplified we're gonna it a little thing. bit. We're going to do our own thing. At doomandbloom.net. What do okay. You think? I'm going to be changing that soon. All right. Well, you figure we'll out how to you know when get into that. Okay. All right. You can also find us on Facebook at our group. Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. We have a couple Facebook pages, Doom and Bloom, and Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy show. You have a personal page, which you you want to find everything um, that we put up. It always goes first to Joe Alton, MD. Just actually Joe Alton. No, I think they have the MD. All right. He says Joe Alton. I believe him. He's very smart, guys. <laughs> Follow <laughs> okay. us at, on Twitter at Prepper Show. You'll get there. Right? <laughs> don't, yeah. And don't forget our YouTube channel at DR Bones Podcast. No, excuse me. Well, it is DR Bones Podcast, but you can also find it at DR Bones Nurse Amy. It, either one of them will uh, show up our YouTube channel. And we have a new radio show, American Survival Radio. And our video cast is the first and third Wednesday of every month at AroundTheCabin.com. Now, I just want to say the, that American Survival Radio is a current event show. It does also deal with some issues that may be political. There are opinions there. So if you're looking mostly for survival medicine stuff, Survival Medicine Hour, this podcast is the one for you. And also, don't forget our brand new spanking, new third edition of this Survival Medicine Handbook is now available on Amazon. Brand new, 700 pages, 150 topics on anything, gosh, just about anything that you're going to encounter in times of trouble. We also have a book on Zika virus. We'll be giving you Zika updates from time to time. But right now, I want to thank the awesome people of Springfield, Missouri. Oh, yeah. For 
coming by and saying hi. That at, was a very busy expo. Yes, Lots it of was. people came through. That's right. At the RK Prepper Show, our good friend Randy Curley and his brother. And they put on a pretty good show, I think. Absolutely. Very well organized. Very well attended. Very helpful people. Absolutely. And let me tell you, folks, if you're putting on an expo, billboards and putting flyers in local restaurants apparently really work. And those little yellow signs that you poke into the ground a couple of days before the show, we had a lot of foot traffic. And they did some radio. They went on some radio shows. Like Vince Vanelli. Right. That's right. Uh, His show is called USA Prepares, and uh, it's a local show. It's in in Missouri, in that area of Missouri. And so it helps spread the word. Help, and right, exactly. Vince has a, a good following. In fact, he is also on GCNlive.com. That's you can right. Find his show there. That's right. And we had really enjoyed doing our suture class there and talking about the survival medic, how to be an effective medic in times of trouble. So, anyhow, big thanks to all the nice people in Springfield, Missouri, for coming by and saying hi. A special thanks to Kathy McBride-Martin, who is a member of our Survival Medicine group on Facebook, and she came by and spent some time hanging out with us, and we really really enjoy meeting some of the people that are in these groups and And in our social media and actually getting to know them as opposed to... A name on Facebook that you meet a person and you get to hug them and say hello and have a little chat. And you know what's really funny? Everyone thinks that preppers are just, you know, complete right-wing nuts. Well, let me tell you, preppers are made up of every walk of life, every culture, every color. We're all together with the same mindset. That's right. We are a community. Yes, and our next event is actually in our hometown. In fact, in our home, almost, our second home, which is our warehouse. We are having a suture class on July 16th at 10 a.m. Check out doomandbloom.net. Go to the medical classes page, and you will find it. And if you live around here, you can sign up. It'll be a great class. Well, summer's here and the West is experiencing record high temperatures and a series of heat waves that's going to continue until fall. Wow. And even worse, the scorching temperatures are igniting scores of wildfires that are threatening communities throughout the region. Officials have predicted a high-risk situation as the heat surpassed 100 degrees across much of Southern California. That's an asphalt jungle there in L.A., Desert cities, though, throughout Nevada, Arizona, and New Mexico actually hit temperatures reaching the 120s. These temperatures put more than 3,000 firefighters that are in the area to fight the fires in danger of major heat-related injury and illness. The power grid's being tested by all the millions of air conditioning units set on max cool. And <laughs> I bet. I'll bet. And we can <clears throat> expect to see some major issues if the grid goes down and people have and people have to fight the heat with fans and things yes. they did in the old days. Oh my gosh, I grew up in South Florida without air conditioning. I don't know how you did it. Things, okay, couple things we did to beat the heat. Uh, first of all, we spent a lot of time uh, in water. We did live in South Florida, so there were lakes, there was the beach, everyone had pools, it was just something that we have and 
we would go hang out in the water a lot, which keeps your body cool. Yes. Which is really nice. And before we went to sleep at night, we would all get in the pool for a little while. The sun was down. The water cooled off a little bit. And then we would get out and we would put our ceiling fans on. Everyone had a ceiling fan in their room. And so you would sleep with just a sheet or so, not a lot of covering, and very light clothing, if any. <laughs> and um, that would keep you cool. Your hair was wet. That would help cool your head down. And your body temperature had dropped, so you would be able to go to sleep. It was the only way we could go to sleep. So we all got in the pool before we went to sleep. But you can do that in a shower. You can get in a shower and get yourself wet before you go to sleep. It's the same idea. It's just a matter of bringing down your temperature with cooler water and keeping your hair wet as you go to sleep and then a little bit of circulating air. Very good advice. <laughs> Should I even read this now? No, no yes, go I ahead. should because that was just somebody who grew up in South Florida without air conditioning. But we're talking about actual heat waves. Oh yeah. And those heat wave heat waves are basically defined by what the temperature is usually in an area. And so if the temperature is 20 degrees higher than it normally is, even if it's in Alaska somewhere, they may call it a heat wave. But some heat waves are true natural disasters. You might not think they are, but they really are. Heat waves caused mass casualties, as they did in Europe, when tens of thousands of people died of ex exposure. That didn't happen in the Middle Ages. That happened in 2003. Places like India, Pakistan, other tropical underdeveloped countries they experience thousands of heat related deaths every year and there are already several recorded deaths just in the american west this week so how exactly does heat kill somebody your body core regulates its temperature for optimal organ function when body core temperature rises excessively we call that hyperthermia damage occurs that leak toxins and cause cell death and major inflammation now, these deaths can occur very quickly without intervention. Even those who are physically fit are at risk. Now, even in modern times, hyperthermia carries a 10% death rate. Now, that's mostly in the elderly and infirm, but it kills. The ill effects due to overheating are called heat exhaustion if they're mild or moderate. But if severe, they're referred to as heat stroke. They look a little bit different. Heat exhaustion usually doesn't result in permanent damage, but heat stroke does. Indeed, it can permanently disable or even kill its victim. It's a medical emergency. You have to diagnose it and treat it promptly. The risk of heat stroke correlates strongly to what we call the heat index. That's a measurement of the effects that air temperature has when combined with high humidity. Above about 60% relative humidity, and we are way above that down here in Florida, Loss of heat by perspiration is impaired, so you can't sweat effectively, and it increases your chances of having heat exhaustion or heat stroke. Exposure to full sun in this type of situation increases the reported heat index by as much as 10 to 15 degrees. That means it's 85 degrees, feels like 95. Simply having muscle cramps or fainting, that is bad enough, but it doesn't necessarily signify a major dangerous heat-related medical event. You'll see heat cramps often in a lot of kids that are running around on a hot summer's day. Get them out of the sun, massage the affected muscles, and make sure they're well hydrated. In addition to heat cramps and fainting, though, you may see in heat exhaustion a number of other symptoms. You might see confusion, a rapid pulse. You might see flushing, 
uh, nausea and vomiting, sweating, headache, temperatures up to 105 degrees. And if you don't do things to cool the victim then, then they could easily progress to heat stroke. And heat stroke, in addition to all the possible signs and symptoms of heat exhaustion, you'll see them begin to have issues with mental status. They may lose consciousness. They may have seizures, convulsions, epileptic fits, whatever you want to call it. But they sometimes even have issues with breathing. Breathing becomes rapid and shallow in somebody that is suffering from heat stroke. They've even seen bleeding in the urine or vomit in some people who are experiencing this issue. If you don't deal with this quickly, once somebody's in heat stroke, they go into shock, organs malfunction, and that person can possibly die. It is serious. You can tell heat stroke from heat exhaustion because the skin is likely to be hot to the touch like heat exhaustion, but not so sweaty. It's usually pretty dry. Sweating might be completely absent. And this is because the body makes efforts to cool itself down until it hits a temperature of, let's say, 105 to 106 degrees. And at that point, you cannot regulate your body temperature and the body's ability to use sweating as a natural temperature regulator fails. It goes away. You can't sweat. In heat stroke, the body core rises incredibly. It could be 110 degrees Fahrenheit or more. Now, you notice that if somebody with heat stroke... It sounds like frying an egg. It is pretty much. You could probably fry an egg on their forehead. You'll notice that the skin in somebody with heat stroke becomes red, not because it's burnt, but because the blood vessels are dilating in an effort to try to dissipate some of the heat. Now, in some circumstances, the patient's skin may actually seem cool to you. This person's probably in some type of shock because these people are feel sort of cold and clammy to the touch. But if you take a reading with a thermometer, you'll see that they're very hot. That'll reveal the patient's true status. When overheated patients are no longer able to cool themselves, it's up to their rescuers to do the job. If hyperthermia is suspected, you should immediately remove the victim from the heat source, get them out of the sun, for example, have their clothing removed, drench them with cold water or ice, if you have it, uh, have their legs elevated above the level of their heart, that's called the shock position, be fanned or otherwise ventilated to help with heat evaporation, and they should also have moist, cold compresses placed in the neck, the armpit, and the groin areas. Now, why the neck, armpit, and groin? Because major blood vessels pass close to the skin right around these areas, and cold packs will more effectively cool the body core. Oral rehydration, in other words, giving fluids, is not a bad idea. There's a lot of fluids lost in somebody in this situation, but it's only good if the patient is awake and alert. If your patient has altered mental status, they may swallow the fluid into their airways. This causes damage to the lungs and puts you in a lot worse shape than when you started. Big issue. Heat stroke is preventable in a lot of different ways. Here are some tips from the Arizona State Department of Health Services. They say that you should drink at least two liters, about a half gallon of water a day, if you're mostly indoors, and one or two additional liters for every hour of outdoor time. Drink before you feel thirsty and avoid alcohol and caffeine. They here, will honey, dehydrate you. Have a sip of water. Here All right, go. thanks. Right here. Oh, there's the water. Hot. All right, there's the water. There we go. <laughs> you should wear lightweight, light-colored clothing. Use a sun hat or an umbrella at all times to deflect the sun's rays. 
Eat smaller, more frequent meals instead of large ones. Avoid strenuous activities. Stay indoors if you can during the hottest part of the day and take regular breaks if you have to exert yourself. The bottom line is this is pretty preventable if you do the things the Arizona State Department of Health wants you to do. This is very, very simple. Just don't overdo it and you should be okay. Now, remember, in a heat wave, it's important to check on the elderly, the very young, and the infirm regularly and often. These people have more difficulty seeking help, and you might just save a life if you're vigilant. Know the warning signs and how to help those with heat-related medical issues. So, speaking of summer, it's indeed mosquito season and you probably won't oh gee <laughs> that's right you... how awesome <laughs> i know lucky us you probably won't get malaria transmitted by a mosquito this year but you could get zika virus now you may think the most dangerous animal in the world is oh i don't know the great white shark or the killer whale or the bengal tiger well it isn't it is the mosquitoes responsible for spreading millions of cases of misery and death in the form that's of things true. like malaria zika West Nile virus, yellow fever, dengue fever, chikungunya, all sorts of crazy, crazy, horrible things that can kill you in some cases or leave you with major, major long-term effects. Now, mosquitoes like the tropics, places like Brazil, which is scheduled to hold the Summer Olympics in the Carnival city of Rio de Janeiro. Now, there's been a million cases of Zika in the country, and that's a court not my estimate is according to the World Health Organization, and there are thousands of suspected or confirmed cases of Zika-related birth defects in babies of women who caught the infection. So things haven't been that peachy keen in the Olympic host city, and things are just getting worse. A letter that was written to the World Health Organization calling for the cancellation of the summer, or at least the delay or the movement of the Summer Olympics in Rio has been signed by now over 250 doctors and scientists, people that are big shots in the National Institute of Health or whatever the high level, highest level medical department is in a, a lot of different countries. And they're concerned that the Zika virus in Brazil is acting differently than it has elsewhere in the past. Right. It's not such a terrible <clears throat> virus normally, but it's been doing some crazy things to pregnant ladies, babies, and even causing some major neurological problems like Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, where you get weakness and paralysis, and sometimes it can be long-lasting. I mentioned all, there has to be some kind of mutation going on here. I mentioned that last year in uh, an article that I wrote on the website, matter of fact, Absolutely. a very long time ago. So I think, I you, think they're coming around to that idea. I agree. And also... Um, there, there may be something to some new rumblings in the research world that people have had dengue fever and uh, antibodies, antibodies it. to it, right? Somehow they think that Zika is actually worse in people who have had dengue fever, which dengue fever is pretty prevalent. Yes, can be a hemorrhagic in Brazil, disease, right? Yes, it is. There are a lot of so, people that have had it. They need to start asking these folks that get Zika who get really sick if they've had dengue fever. And it's perhaps the 80% that have not had dengue fever that don't end up with Zika symptoms. And maybe the 20% that do 
not only have gotten a mutated Zika, but also have possibly had dengue fever in the past. Not only... So it's just another theory that, that's being tested. Right. Well, what's the other way you can get antibodies to dengue fever is by getting the dengue fever vaccine. And that is a very scary thing because that's what they've been giving. So, yikes. Yeah. <laughs> right uh, now in the U.S., there are more than 800 cases of Zika illness that have been identified. All of these in people that have returned from the epidemic zone. 80% of people don't have symptoms at all. That means that there must be... if. You have 80% of people not experiencing symptoms. You got 800 cases of people that did. Well, you got probably 4,000 cases of people that have been infected. It's worse in Puerto Rico where there have been 1,800 cases of people with actual symptoms mm -hmm. recorded in Puerto Rico. So it is a big issue. So especially it's a big issue because many Zika victims just have no symptoms. And that means that a lot of people especially women, won't know that they have the virus until a sonogram identifies or an ultrasound identifies abnormalities in their baby. And so it is a big... Zika virus can be transmitted not just, I guess, via a mosquito bite. I mean, originally, I guess it is. But you can also pass it to your sexual partner. A man can pass it to a woman in their seminal fluid. And indeed... They, it appears to last longer, the virus does, in the seminal fluid than it does in the blood. Now explain that to folks because when we think we get better, you think that your entire body gets better all at once because you have the same blood circulating everywhere and you would think that your immune system would be able to get rid of it everywhere in your body. But that's not true. That's right, because certain places in our body, for like the testicles and like the inside of your eye, perhaps, are immune-privileged. We'll call them that. That means that the immune system just doesn't attack that area very strongly. Mm -hmm. And one of those places is indeed where seminal fluid, where semen is produced. A virus can live in the testicles more safely and for longer periods of time. Much longer yes. periods of time. Right, months in some cases, and that makes it more likely to be a sexually transmitted issue over a longer period of time. So it's hard to say why that is, and why a particular organ, or at least why the testicles are immune privileged. It might be so that the immune system doesn't affect the chance of being able to reproduce. Mm -hmm. So it could be that. Now, with regards to the Olympics, which I have been... One of the guys that have been suggesting we should cancel it, it has been canceled before, canceled five times, three summer and two winter, but mostly or all due to world wars. However, I will say there are other sports events that have been canceled for public health reasons. In 2003, the Women's World Cup was moved from China to the U.S. due to the SARS epidemic, so there is a precedent involved here. Now, despite the risk, the International Olympic Committee and the World Health Organization seems to be seems to be in cahoots saying that the Olympics will be safe and enjoyable. I doubt that greatly, uh, especially the enjoyable part. And but I also don't believe it's going to be that safe either. Even but, but despite that, I'm in a very small minority. Most uh, of doctors, even in the United States, especially the uh, director of the CDC, Tom Frieden. Dr. Tom Frieden believes there's no reason to cancel the game. But things are crazy in Brazil right now, and not just from a medical standpoint, from a political, from an economic standpoint. From a medical standpoint, they've mobilized a lot of their military, the biggest military mobilization in, in Brazil, not to deal with an invading country's soldiers, but to deal with an invading mosquito. So 
despite this, despite all these soldiers being drafted into the mosquito control movement, a lot of the low-income residents of Rio de Janeiro, which is one of the areas most badly hit by the virus, haven't seen these efforts in their actual neighborhoods. So it's hard to say what's going on there. Has the money been waylaid for this, or is it going somewhere else, or are they not going to Rio de Janeiro, these soldiers that are uh, fumigating a lot of houses and things like that? It's really hard to say. Well, that's just a medical standpoint. From a political standpoint, the president of Brazil recently stepped down due to impeachment proceedings. She calls the interim government that's there actually a coup, as in a revolution. Now, more than half of the members of Congress, they are also in trouble. They are under investigation as part of a massive corruption scandal. This is not, I'm not kidding here. Imagine if half of our politicians were were investigated or indicted for that. Actually, it might not be a bad thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, however, we are talking about Brazil. And we, are talking and about we Brazil. need the people who are running the country to actually be running the country. That's right. This is a serious issue. People aren't being paid. These, these uh, police officers and firefighters are not being paid. Uh, they're not getting, again, like you said, their supplies. I mean... Everything's falling apart. Right. Well, the they the can't entire fix anything if they don't have money. Right. The entire economy is based on oil prices, and the all oil prices have been down, as you can imagine. So the country is in recession, has a growing deficit. Mm -hmm. The governor, or acting governor of Rio de Janeiro, has declared a state of financial disaster, saying that a total collapse, quote unquote, of public services is imminent unless the federal government of Brazil steps in. And how often have you ever? heard a politician say that something under his watch is in total collapse. Total, and the words total collapse mm -hmm. is just beyond. It's it's not like, gee, we're having some financial troubles. We need to take some loans, you know, making a call out to other countries. Hey, can you lo loan us some money? I mean, they're just talking about a total collapse. It's a mess. Imminent. It's a mess. And you mentioned security with the police. Uh, as a doctor, of course, I'm concerned about Zika virus because it's an infection, but I'm also concerned about people getting mugged or shot. They have if, a serious drug they issue. They go to the it, Olympic Games. Exactly. There are certain areas in Rio de Janeiro, and we've seen uh, lots of uh, uh, movies, not movies, but documentaries, realistic documentaries about certain areas in Rio de Janeiro not being safe. Right. And and that's about the nicest thing I can say about those certain areas. And in fact, they're pretty darn scary. That's right. Security for the games is in big jeopardy if you're not paying the police. Let's face it, they don't even have money to buy gas to uh, run their vehicles. It's reached a point where they've asked for donations of things like toilet paper for the precincts. I mean, gosh, this is pretty terrible. And, and and they don't go into some of these neighborhoods. They just don't enter the neighborhoods. And it's not that they don't want to enter the neighborhoods. It's that the people who are running that those certain neighborhoods, the drug lords, basically, have said, you know, we're going to just kill you if you come in here. So Indeed. don't come in here. Indeed, you're right. 50 police officers have been killed in 2016 in Rio de Janeiro, and indeed homicides are up in general 40 percent 
it's pretty bad. As a matter of fact, uh, just a couple of days ago, body parts washed up on the beach that's going to host Olympic volleyball. That is disgusting. So it is. Can you imagine terrible. during the Olympics? You know, these athletes from all over the world are just doing their thing. They're focused on their game. They're playing, and suddenly someone starts screaming on the beach a few feet from where they are. You know, because body parts have just washed up. It's pretty awful. This is horrifying. Now, on top of that, Rio is behind on completing a lot of the infra- or some of the infrastructure for the games, including the metro line that transports visitors to the venues. Some, which some means is they the have- key word. Right. There, some. Yes. Now, an elevated bike path uh, that connected the triathlon venue collapsed, mm-hmm. killing a couple of cyclists and some of the engineering firms that built most of the infrastructure under investigation for bribes and kickbacks to politicians to get these jobs. Now, as if you need an additional bad omen, the Olympic mascot, the Jaguar, uh, was brought from a local zoo for a torch lighting ceremony. It got a little rambunctious. It was shot and killed by a nervous security guy. So, wow, what a mess. And But despite this, the Brazilian government is adamant about continuing with the games and you have to feel for them because calling off the Olympics would mean stopping half-finished buildings, canceling contracts, you know, laying off people, refunding ticket fees. It's a mess. Brazil's thought to have sunk about $15 bucks into the game so far, and so it's really hard to cut your losses at this point. But the truth of the matter is, is that you have to do something. Delaying the Olympics, as this letter that I mentioned in the beginning of our talk here, uh, was sent. That's really not the answer. It's being held during the winter, the Olympics that is, in su- in Brazil. And it's in the summer. It's, it's the southern hemisphere. And so their <laughs> winter is our summer. We're in summer here and uh, it's winter there. And mosquitoes are probably less active there in August than they would be in, for example, January or February. And so a delay just would place the Olympics in warmer months when mosquitoes will be out in full force. Although it's a tropical country. I mean, its temperature, even in the winter, is in the 70s. So it's hard to say whether there's really that much of a difference. So I've got to add my voice to those people calling not to delay, but to cancel or indeed move the Olympics. And you need to ask yourself out there this question. And that is, is it worth sending a half a million tourists not to mention 10,000 athletes to ground zero of a raging epidemic for some kind of sporting event. That is, in my opinion, a pretty easy question to answer. These people come from 170 different countries. They'll get bitten by mosquitoes. I guarantee if you're going to travel to Brazil, you will be bitten by a mosquito at one point or another during your visit. And some of those mosquitoes may carry Zika and they, they may carry have, visa. They, they might, might be, or they might have American Express. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no visas for traveling to yes. that country. Uh, They're so gonna. Yeah. This, oh, the, they may not have a visa. Yes, yes. The they mosquitoes may have a visa. might get visas so they can come travel to America. Well, that's a great way to get a little uh, revenue for Brazil. Well, anyhow, all right. <laughs> sell, enough silliness. Sell visas to mosquitoes. <laughs> yes, that's silly, silly, silly. Yes, but silly. those mosquitoes have to be tested for diseases before they're allowed <laughs> to come into our country. Right. I At think. least. The mosquitoes have to be tested. At least for Zika. Well, anyhow, people that travel to the Olympics, they will get mosquito bites. Some of them will get Zika virus, will have Zika virus in those mosquito bites, and they're going to head back home where local mosquitoes, some of which are in the the same species, could spread the poorly understood virus 
throughout the world. Is this what's going to happen? <sighs> Definitely no. I'm not saying that. Hopefully but not. why increase the chance that something like that could possibly happen, uh, even increasing it a little bit? And although I'm in the minority with regards to physicians, 50% of Americans agree with me, and 71% of Americans say that they haven't the slightest interest in going to Brazil. 82% of those guys say that Zika is indeed one of the factors. I mean, there are a lot of countries that are underutilizing venues and athlete housing they built for previous Olympics. I'll bet Sochi in Russia has some space that they could possibly use. I'm sure we have venues in the U.S. or maybe London had a recent Olympics. So make the event truly global by having it in a number of countries instead of having it be a big public relations campaign for just one. So that is my opinion. Now, I want to just say, let's say only one person goes to the Olympics uh, uh, Let's say of that half a million people, one person gets the virus and mm-hmm. takes it back to, let's say, the United States, to Florida. Florida has plenty of mosquitoes. And Wait, did you have to say Florida? Yes, I had to say Florida. <laughs> this is where we live. Right. Well, scientists think that that exact thing happened. One person got the virus and took it back to their home country, which happened to have plenty of mosquitoes. Yes, we and did. And that was Brazil. So, and they thought that happened in late 2013, and since then there have been a million cases of Zika. One person equal to a million cases of Zika. So if it happened there, it could certainly happen here, especially in warm weather states. Mm-hmm. You know, now, the one thing about us is that we're a rich country. We have air conditioning in most buildings, better housing for our citizens, and we have disposable income. We can buy it re- mosquito repellent. And that's something that not all Brazilians have. Well, not only mosquito repellent, but... It's a rare house in America that doesn't have screening. We put screens on the patio doors. We have screens around pools for the most point part. Uh, we have screens on our windows. There's not a lot of windows that you find anywhere that don't have either professionally made screens or some sort of screening because we... We don't like to be bitten by mosquitoes. Right. Apparently in Brazil, they're kind of used to it. I don't know why, but it's just part of their culture. Part of their deal. They don't put screens up and their doors are wide open and mosquitoes just come in and out as they want. And, you know, so they don't stop them from coming into their houses. We don't like to have mosquitoes in our houses. We kill them, we spray them, mm-hmm. we try to prevent them, eliminate them. So um, it's it's a different way of thinking about um, mosquitoes where we just don't like them here. Well, we as a result, Which is great. because of all these things, <laughs> I don't think we're going to have a major epidemic of Zika here. But even one American newborn that gets the disease oh, yeah. is too much. It's, it's horrible. costly for a, over a lifetime. It'll cost oh. 10 million bucks to take care of that child and the effect on the family oh, of that baby, that's going to be devastating. And no sporting event is worth that kind of heartbreak, and in my opinion. And the heartbreak mm-hmm. is exactly what I was going to bring up. It is just, if you if you folks have seen a picture without a hat on, if you have seen a baby with this condition, and I think I actually delivered um, probably two of them during my many, many years of just being a laborer and delivery nurse and then becoming a nurse midwife. Um, it is horrible. It's just the saddest, worst thing you could possibly think of. This child will never 
be normal. There's no hope. The brain will not grow back. Um, it, it is just, it, it affects the baby's entire it's functions. It's very sad. awful and sad and just, it is heartbreaking. I don't want one baby to be born with that ever. It's terrible. Okay, well, that's enough for infections. Well, let's talk a little bit about orthopedic injuries. Certainly during this summer, we can expect a lot of outdoor activities, mm-hmm. and sure enough, some of them will cause injuries. So the kind of injuries I want to talk about today are sprains and strains. Well, let me just mention something. Do you know why I wanted to talk about that today? No. Why? Because your son hurt himself. Yep, yep. He injured himself, actually, as well. A slip. That's right. It he could had happen a, to anyone, so young or strength. old. Yeah, that's exactly that's right. That's why I wanted to bring this up. So let's talk a little bit about this. Bones, joints, muscles, tendons, these are the structures that give your body support and locomotion. And there's really no substitute for having all your parts in good working order. The amount of work that these structures do or would be called upon to do, for example, in a disaster, they'll be greatly increased. And certainly, if you were off the grid, there'll be an extraordinary amount of strain on the body. Therefore, if you're going to be a medical guy in times of trouble, you can expect to see more injuries, and you have to identify and treat these injuries. Now, prior to anything happening, any disaster, certainly any long-term disaster for sure, you should do whatever repairs of orthopedic faults that you happen to have. You got a bum knee, get your knee fixed. Your dad just got his knee yes. fixed. Shoulders, ankles, other joints that are commonly damaged just to, due to long-term abuse, it pays to tune these up. And if you have to have surgical care done, if you need a surgical treatment or some kind of procedure done, you might as well do it while you have the highest technology available where they can do these things oftentimes through very tiny incisions. You go home the same day and you sure don't want to have a bum joint if times get tough. Now, speaking of joints, you probably have heard of ligaments and tendons and sprains and strains, but you might not know exactly what they are. So let's define some anatomical terms. Now, a joint is a physical point of connection between two bones, and that usually allows a certain range of motion. For example, your knee allows motion um, of the leg, and the elbow joint allows motion of the arm. Uh, a ligament is a fibrous tissue that, contain, uh, that connects one bone to another, oftentimes across a joint. Now, a tendon is tissue that extends from the muscle to connect to a bone, and therefore... A sprain is an injury where a ligament is excessively stretched by forcing a joint across across its normal range of motion. But a strain is when the muscle or its tendon, its connection to the bone, is partially torn as a result of an injury. So a sprain and a strain are different things. Usually sprains are over joints. Strains are usually in large muscles. Could be in your thigh muscle, could be in your lower back. You got big muscles there. And so that's a big issue. Now, if you have a complete tear through a ligament or a muscle or a tendon, that is known as a rupture. So uh, you may rupture your Achilles tendon, for example, your tendon in your heel that goes to the muscles in the lower leg. And that would be a major, major injury. Now, I have to say that our joints are really marvels of engineering. They provide mobility. They provide locomotion. They bear an incredible amount of stress, oftentimes without mishap most of the time. 
they're moving parts though and moving parts wear down so any long-term survival setting you got to realize that your level of physical exertion is going to go up a notch the risk of infection to the joints is going to increase as well you can expect the most common sprains to involve the ankle wrist knee finger those are very common the most likely signs and symptoms you'll see are going to be bruising swelling and pain it's very few people have never had a sprain before, so you probably have experienced it. You probably would recognize a sprain when you see it. Now, treatment for most sprains is pretty straightforward. It follows the easy-to-remember RICE protocol, the, the word RICE, R-I-C-E. R stands for rest. It's important to avoid further injury by not testing the injured joint. Stop whatever actions led to the injury, and you'll have the best chance to recover, right? Failure to rest is the biggest mistake among athletes, especially and of course rugged individualists like the preparedness community now they these people will have a tendency to continue to stress the joint by continuing whatever activity caused it bad idea it doesn't allow the ligament to heal it'll re-injure itself even if it's partially healed and you might have some permanent damage so you might i know in survival settings you might not have the luxury of being able to rest but if you don't expect chronic problems in a weakened joint Ice. Now, ice, cold therapy, it decreases. Ice is the eye in rice. If you can use cold therapy, you'll decrease both swelling and pain, and the earlier you apply it, the better effect it's going to have. If you're in the wilderness, you might have to stick your ankle in a stream to get some cooling action, although you should keep some of those shake-and-break ice packs in your backpack so that you can use them. They activate just by squeezing them or shaking them, and that is a good thing to do. And I will be discussing a Z-Pot to help you make cool packs. Very interesting. So that's going to come up next after you're done. <laughs> so whatever cold packs that you can put together, you should perform cold therapy, put cold on that area, the injured area, several times a day, 20 to 30 minutes each time for the first, especially 24 to 48 hours. And then I want you to apply compression, C, compression, R-I-C. Uh, um, compression is useful We're using a bandage like an ace wrap to decrease swelling and should be placed after every cold therapy and that'll help not only provide support for the joint but it'll decrease um, the pain in the area and give you a feeling of support so that's important the wrap should be tight but not uncomfortably so and you got to look for tingling or increased numbness that'll tell you the wrap is too tight and you should loosen it a little bit an excessively tight wrap will actually affect the circulation. You'll notice the fingertips or the toes becoming white or even blue. And E, the E in rice, R-I-C-E, is elevation. You want to elevate the sprain above the level of the heart, and that's going to help prevent swelling at the site of the injury. Swelling is caused by fluid that pools where the inflammation is. We call that edema, E-D-E-M-A. And it likes to accumulate wherever gravity is going to allow. By elevating the leg, you allow the fluid to process itself back into your circulation. And at least it won't impede the healing process. So this works for swollen ankles due to chronic medical problems like high blood pressure as well as trauma. Now, you might add the word, the letter S to rice. Rices, S stands for stabilization. That's immobilizing the injury will prevent further damage. That's S. Now, this may be accomplished by the compression bandage alone, or it could be supported by a splint or a cast even. Splints can be commercially produced, such as a very useful SAM splint, structural aluminum malleable splint, 
or it may be improvised with sticks, cloths, pillows, and duct tape. Lots of different improvisations will work uh, to give you a, a splint or allow you to stabilize an injured joint. Now, I'm often asked how to tell the difference between a sprain and a fracture. That we'll talk about next time. But I do want to talk about some alternative methods, some natural methods of dealing with sprains and strains, and here is Nurse Amy to tell you about them. Before I talk about natural remedies, I would like to talk about prevention because an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So let's talk about prevention first. The best way to prevent a sprain is to, at least for your feet, wear good, sturdy, supportive boots. If you're going to go hiking, don't wear sandals. Wear something that is above the ankle and gives you some real good stability. At least you're going to help prevent a sprain in your ankle by doing that. Now, there's some things that involve exercise that's going to help you prevent strains. And so some of those is in the morning, and we're not talking about becoming an athlete here, but every morning perform some stretching. This increases the blood flow to the cold, stiff muscles and joints. And you'll notice when you start moving in the morning that you feel like, oh, oh, especially the older you get. Young folks, you're probably not feeling this yet. But as you get a little older, you know, you just can't jump out of bed and start instantly. You got to move slowly. So do a little bit of stretching. Again, I'm not talking about, you know, performing three hours of stretching, but, you know, bend over slowly, touch your toes, stretch your arms, move around a little bit before you immediately start doing something athletic. So move your body slowly at first. When you lift a heavy object, such as um, a backpack or a heavy box, bend from the knees, keep your back straight and your head up and let your legs perform the work. Move the object close to your body. Don't reach away from your body with your arms outstretched to lift something up. Bring it close to you, get your arms underneath it, and then lift from your legs. Your knees might not be too happy if you have bad knees, but you know, folks, get that fixed if you've got a problem or wear support. So lift from your legs not your back. Again, keep your back straight up. And, you know, if you're wearing backpacks, try to keep the weight sitting on your hips rather than the weight pulling your shoulders back. You, there are um, waist straps for most of the backpacks. And if you don't have one like that, you should get one that's padded and it buckles in the front. And it helps to distribute the weight. So all of the backpack weight, if you're carrying something heavy, isn't bending you backwards. If you're bent backwards from the weight of a backpack and you start to move around and maybe you have to climb, that's going to be a serious issue because your center of balance is thrown off and you're more likely to fall or injure yourself because you're being pulled in an abnormal way. And it's going to hurt your shoulders and possibly your neck just from the weight pulling in an odd position. So distribute the weight. They also have chest straps for a lot of them. I know my big backpacks have a chest strap and a really thick waist strap. So it does help with that. Um, if you are on rocky or unstable terrain, 
consider not only using the boots, but also using a walking stick. I know I'm not old. What do I need a walking stick for? Well, for a couple of things. One is to help balance. If you kind of get off balance a little bit, a stick can help catch you rather than you completely falling down. But also, if something tries to attack you, you have a weapon. <laughs> so there's two reasons to carry a stick. Uh, when you're hiking, it's even if you're on flat terrain, have a stick. We always pick up something. At the beginning of trails, especially in the Smoky Mountain National Park, uh, folks are really nice. They'll make walking sticks, they'll use them, and then they'll leave them at the front of the trail so that the next person can use them. So that's always a nice thing. So if you've made a stick and you've gone for a walk, leave it at the beginning of the trail. You know what? You might help someone else from being injured. Let's talk about medicine for a minute uh, before, again, we get to natural. Uh, things you need to stockpile. Ibuprofen is an excellent anti-inflammatory and pain reliever. You can also use aspirin, but you have to be careful because if you're taking blood thinners, ibuprofen and aspirin um, may make that worse. So if those are your issues, you're going to have to use Tylenol, but Tylenol is not an anti-inflammatory. So keep that in mind. Um, ibuprofen would be your best bet, again, if you're not taking other medicines that thin your blood. And be careful. And also, if you drink a lot of alcohol, that thins your blood. And aspirin and ibuprofen uh, may make that worse. And also, you may have problems with um, stomach ulcers if you take a lot of aspirin and you drink alcohol. So be careful with those things. Uh, for muscle injuries, if you have stockpiled some things, if you happen to have had some leftover medicine like uh, Valium or Flexeril, uh, these are prescribed for people who have strains and it will help you rest and help relax the area and provide pain relief and help with healing. If they're not available, uh, some patients will benefit from mild massage. So there's a number of alternative remedies. I'm going to talk about three of them a little later, but I think we're going to have to put that on the next show as a part two. So um, let's talk about um, some oils, first of all, uh, which help clear up bruising. Uh, two to three drops of uh, helichrysum, cypress, and I remember these are all essential oils, clove or geranium, and you can blend those and you can also use them singularly and you should mix them with a carrier oil that's important such as coconut or olive oil and use them three to five times a day on bruising and you know what it looks like we are starting to run out of time i'm going to leave the rest of it for part two you've been listening to the survival medicine hour with dr bones and nurse amy from doomandbloom.net we really appreciate our listeners thank you so much i'm sorry sometimes we don't have the show exactly on saturdays but we do our best and we travel a lot so we really really appreciate your your patience and the time that you take to listen to us thank you so much and we'll see you next week bye bye <music>